So how was everyone's Thanksgiving? What was the best dish you had? Whether it was turkey, side dish, what? Yeah. Stuffing. Stuffing. All right. Excellent. Excellent. Anyone else? What? And especially yeah, yeah. Turkey. Okay. Turkey was was good this year, right? You ate your family. My <laughs> <laughs> I, I like it. I like it. it hurts. I, I know. <laughs> so I know um, I posted it on my social medias the other day, but I might have come up with the greatest Thanksgiving leftover of all time. Yeah. Thanksgiving pizza. So I had this kind of leftover pizza crust, and I put the gravy down, mashed potatoes, and then put the you know chop up the stuffing and some turkey, put it on top, a little bit of bacon, cook that, and then. Put cranberry sauce over the top. It was excellent. That might be my new go-to. Thanksgiving sandwiches might be over now. Like that, that might be where I'm at going forward. It was delicious. So before I get going, let's go over our student sheet for the week. So first week of Advent, and today we're going to be talking about Mary. And so the the activity is a kind of number crunching game, like a, a quick cipher game. Try to decode a message here. Always fun. And the take-home activity is to make something similar to what we have over here is make a simple set of Advent candles so that you can light the Advent candles with your family at home as we're doing it here together. That would be a fun project. I know we did this something similar to this, what, two or three years ago? So you might still have some materials for it. Or if you do, you can just use them. You don't have to remake it. But if you have not, there's some instructions here about how to make them. It's really fun. And this week's memory verse is that the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son. You are to call him... Jesus. Yeah. So, any questions about the sheet? Let me know. Otherwise, it should be really fun. Now, we said this is the first Sunday of Advent, and so that means a couple things. One, it means awesome Christmas shirts for the next four weeks. Yes. So, if you have ugly Christmas shirts, we're not ugly. They can be tasteful Christmas shirts. Wear them on Sundays. I want to see these Christmas shirts coming in. They are one of my favorite parts of the holiday season. And two. It means we're entering a time, what we call Advent. Advent is sometimes called a season of waiting, a season of expectation, the season of kind of looking forward to Christ coming. And so for Advent this year, we are going to do a series called Tales from the Manger, which is in no way a complete ripoff of the old Star Wars book, Tales from the Cantina. Not in any way ripped off from that at all. The idea is we're going to take four characters, or in some groups, groups of characters, people, and first talk about what did this first Christmas mean to them? How were they impacted? What did this Christmas do for their lives? And then kind of spin that forward to see how is, how is Christmas, how is Jesus still continually relevant, still continually impactful to people that are in these different groups, that people that these individual people at the first Christmas represented. So I think that'd be a fun thing we're going to do. And so this week we're going to start with Mary. Now, the passage Madeline read for us, Mary is told she is pregnant. It's a passage most of us have heard before. But I want to highlight just a couple things in it. First, I absolutely love Mary's reaction to all of this. So the angel comes and greets her. Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary's reaction, Mary was greatly troubled at his words. Why was Mary troubled at his words? Well, it's because she knows exactly what kind of greeting this is. This is, if you have siblings, if you were to go up to your brother or your sister and be like, oh, you, you know, you're my favorite sister, right? You're my favorite brother. We're, we're such good friends, right? You know if one of your siblings comes to you like that? They want a favor. 
that, you know, like, this is the kind of greeting you come to someone with when you, you're going to ask something really big of them. And Mary knows this. I think it's interesting that this kind of greeting, angels do a lot. You, it's very common to see a greeting like this, or a do not be afraid greeting. Because most of the time when angels visit people, they're going to have to do something they're not necessarily going to like. Or they're going to have to do something that is going to be difficult for them. And so Mary knows this. She knows that something is up with this greeting. She knows her life is about to be drastically changed forever. Angels coming to visit aren't always the best for the person they visit. They are almost always good for the people of God as a whole. Great things are going to happen as a whole. The individual person they come to, whoa, things might not look so great. Um, and this is probably just because I've been watching a lot of these movies lately. But Christine and I have been re-watching the Lord of the Rings movies, the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit movies. And I kind of thought about this a little bit the same way of Gandalf, the beginning of the first Lord of the Rings book. He comes to Frodo and tells him, all right, you have the Ring of Power. You, you, we have to go destroy it. Frodo would much rather have just not stayed in Hobbiton, stayed in Bag End, stayed in his house, stayed eating second breakfast, 11 seas, afternoon tea, luncheon, all of that, stayed with his book, stayed with his garden, just lived a nice, happy, quiet life, right? Given the choice, Frodo would much rather have done that. But he doesn't. Had he done that, the world as a whole would have been much worse off, right? Ring would have been destroyed, that's what happened. But Frodo, because he goes and destroys the ring, ends up, it ends up being much better for the world. Not for Frodo. Frodo's like, he, he has this line of like, we set out to save the Shire, and we've done that. Just not for me. So it's, he's worse off because of it, but the world as a whole is better. And so all of this is kind of swirling around in Mary's head. This, oh, angel's greeting, I'm not sure how I feel about this, what's, what's going to happen? And she's right. Her life is drastically changed forever. She will become pregnant with the Savior of the world. This is an amazing privilege and an amazing honor. But what is the personal cost to her? What is it costing her? Well, best case scenario, if everything goes according to plan, she gets to have her son for 30, 35 years or so, and then has to watch him tortured and murdered in front of her. That's best case scenario. That's everything works out like it's supposed to. Worst case scenario, Joseph leaves her because she would be branded as an adulteress. There's a good chance her father would not have taken her back, branded as an adulteress, so she would be completely on her own. In the first century, women were not allowed to own property unless they were at an extremely high level of power already, of which Mary was not. So she wouldn't have been able to own property, wouldn't have, wouldn't have been able to really work. Because she would have been labeled as an adulteress, no one would trust her. No one would do business with her. No one would trade with her. Probably no one would marry her. So she would be completely abandoned. She more than likely would have ended up a beggar with a child in tow. So she would have had two options for income and food. One would have been alms. Would have been getting money and food from people going to the temple. And because of her label as an adulteress, she more than likely would have got passed over. The righteous temple hierarchy would prioritize her last among everyone there. So her other option for food and money 
would have been prostitution at the Roman temples. Either option, she would more than likely have been dead by the age of 14 or 15. This is all going on in her head while she's having this conversation with Gabriel. She knows these possibilities are out in front of her. She's balancing this in her head. We know that God does not abandon her, that everything as much as possible works out. In the moment, she doesn't know this. And look at what it ended up did costing her, what, how things did play out. Fast forwarding a little bit, after the wise men, after the Magi come and visit, they happened to let slip to the king at the time, King Herod, that, oh, we're going to go visit the new king of the Jews, of which Herod was the king of the Jews, and he is a very paranoid guy, so the mention of, wait, there's a, another king here? He does not take well. So because of that, Mary and her entire family become enemies of the state. They have one of the worst tyrants in history trying to kill them. So they're forced to flee. They have to leave their home and flee down into Egypt, where they live for years, hiding. Only after Herod's death can they think they might be able to sneak back into the country. But they're still unsure because Herod's son, who might be just as paranoid as Herod, is on the throne. And when they do come back, some of the potential worries of how they're going to be viewed actually come to pass. They return carrying a stigma. Mary is indeed labeled as an adulteress. Look at this passage from Mark 3, where they're talking about Jesus. Isn't, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son, brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Now, this is not the normal way you would refer to someone. You generally refer to someone by who their father was. So by referring to Jesus, by the people, referring to Jesus as Mary's son, they're just reminding us, letting us know that they know Joseph isn't the father. And they don't know who the father is. So this is Mary's son. This is the adulterous son. <clears throat> and so, imagine having all of this in Mary's head. Knowing potentially what's going to happen, us knowing what does happen, she has a very brief back and forth with the angel, kind of like, how is this possible, and all that, but it's not all that long, until she gets to verse 38. Very quickly, she comes to this. I am the Lord's servant. May your word, be, may your word to me be fulfilled. Right here is Mary's leap of faith moment. Once this angel leaves, once this divine visitation is over, she can't change her mind. She cannot go back. There, there's no turning back. If she wants out, it has to be now. And yet all she says is, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. This is such an amazing love. She loves God enough to go through this, down this path that she knows is going to cost her dearly. She loves people she doesn't even know, the world at large, to the point of sacrificing what was being her you know, political and personal life, the life of her family. And her words really struck me as preludes or echoing you know, 
Jesus' words three decades later on the last night of his life when he's troubled, you know, he's going to the cross and he, who's talking to his father, says, not my will, but yours be done. So all of this happens. Mary dives in. Says, yes, I have faith, I have a love. We're doing it. So after the scene, Mary goes and visits her cousin, Elizabeth, who is also pregnant with, who will end up being John the Baptist. Now, Mary approaches, and both the unborn John the Baptist and cousin Elizabeth react with joy. Little baby John is kicking inside the belly, and Elizabeth, upon seeing Mary, declares really loudly, blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would be faithful to his promises to her. Now, what I think is fascinating is notice why Elizabeth says Mary is blessed. We would think that she would say, oh, you're blessed because God has chosen you to bear the Savior of humanity. But that's not what she says. You are not blessed because you've been chosen. You're blessed because she believed. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill promises to her. Blessed because she believed. Elizabeth recognizes the faith and the love that is going on right now. That it is taking to believe and go on this journey. Elizabeth sees the incredible amount of faith Mary has in God. This is why she's blessed. Blessed because she believes. Blessed because of her faith. And with all of this going on, all of this faith, all of this love, all of this uncertainty, and probably a lot of fear going on, Mary's heart wells up. And she sings a song, which has become known to us today as the Magnificat. Now, this is a song which has really become a rallying cry for oppressed peoples, for peoples who live in uncertainty, for peoples who live in danger. In fact, it has been banned throughout history. When India was under British rule, the British banned it from church services because of the inspiring effect it had on people. In Guatemala in the 1980s, people would spray paint verses for the on walls. And so that was banned. Talking about it was banned. Later in Argentina, after the so-called Dirty War, it was also banned because people were using it to try to inspire, to try to keep their hope alive, to not be afraid. So this is a song that represents hope. It represents faith. But above all, it represents love. And I'm going to read it all in a second, but before I do, I just want us to think about, remember, put our mindset in the situation Mary was in. The possibility and, honestly, probably certainty of danger is ahead of her. Social exclusion awaits her. But just imagine knowing that most, if not all, of your family and friends are going to write you off. They're going to shut you out because they think you've done something wrong. They think you have sinned against God. Now imagine knowing differently, knowing the exact opposite, knowing you've been chosen and blessed by God, but then knowing that no one is going to believe you. There was a common thread in the ancient world, especially around this time, of Zeus, the Greek kind of head of the deity. 
he is notorious in Greek and Roman mythology for taking on human form, coming down, and impregnating whoever he wants. And it became a kind of joke in the ancient world of when someone would mysteriously become pregnant who had an affair, who was an adulteress in some way. The excuse they would say would try to use is, well, Zeus did it. And so Mary knows, saying, well, this is God's baby. No one's going to believe her, because that's the default joke that everyone says. She knows no one's going to believe her. All of this swirling around her head. And this is how she reacts. My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercies extend to those who fear him. From generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who, who are proud in their innermost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has, he has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. So for Mary, this first Christmas represents a transition. It represents loss, but it represents gaining something. The dream of a simple life, a quiet life with a partner, having, you know, doing normal things, going out, having fun with friends, all that, that's now gone. But it's replaced with the joy of being present for God's plan of salvation, for being instrumental, for being part of bringing God's plan of salvation to the world. She's part of this plan now. So she is losing a lot. She's gaining so much more. That's kind of like our lives as Christians a little bit, right? Being a Christian does cost us things. It can cost us big things. But what we gain is so much more. The joy we have in fellowship with the Lord. The gift of salvation we have the grace of God, all of that, so much more than anything we potentially lose. Her choice to do this, it's one rooted in love. It's rooted in faith. It's rooted in compassion. This is her no turning back moment. When she goes through, there's no coming back. Her life is drastically changed. But humanity is drastically changed for the better. She's diving headfirst into this with ultimate faith and supreme love. This kind of sacrificial love that she's displaying here. How can we reflect that in our lives today? Yeah, something we talk a lot about at Ridge Race. One of the things on the back of our t-shirts is talking about a sacrificial love. Loving each other, loving our neighbors to the point of sacrifice. So how can we live that out? especially during the season of Advent. What are some ways that we can let our faith in God, our love 
of community, of love of the people of God, the people of this world, determine what we do. I want you to think about that this week. Think about Mary. And think about how, sorry, how can we mirror that kind of love, which in itself is mirroring the love of God. The love God has shown us. How can we mirror that kind of love to people around us this week? Join us in prayer.